Well, it's my privilege to introduce our speaker to you this morning. You see a picture on the screen of the Matt and Sarah Moore family. And so uh, Matt is married there to Sarah. They've been married for just about 20 years. They have three boys, Seth, Silas, and Blythe. And uh, I've known Matt for uh, over 10 years now. So uh, as a church planner here in our uh, EFCA Western District, one of the privileges I have had is to get to know the other uh, pastors, yes, in, in our district, so 50 plus or minus a couple uh, churches and pastors, but the church planters um, through our time as a church, and of course we will be coming up on our 15th anniversary in September as a church, um, the, the church planters, we would, we would try to get together uh, on some Zoom calls and some gatherings at least a couple times of a year and um, encourage one another. Obviously what a church planter goes through is a lot different than uh, a church that's established and has been around for um, 20 plus years or something like that. And, and so Matt came to our district uh, not much longer after we had started uh, to plant a church in Sacramento and it was fun to get to know him as a fellow Western District uh, church planter. And some of you know I serve on our board for the Western District uh, and so at some point in the journey um, Matt joined the board as well. So now I got to know him not only as a co-pastor and planter in the district, but as a board member. And then uh, at some point along the way, and of course most of us will remember Neil Brower, who was our district superintendent for close to 10 years, uh, or nine years, I guess. Um, Neil kind of knew he was going to be retiring at, at some point, and, and uh, he had a vision to uh, raise up from within our district um, the next district superintendent, and his vision was for it to be uh, a pastor, so someone who could both be a local church pastor and work for the district and serve the churches. And uh, in God's goodness, uh, that, that person ended up being Matt Moore. And so uh, about a year ago, when, when Neil transitioned, Matt came on as our associate district superintendent. And so I got to know him again even more as he was leading the board and leading our district. And then just about three weeks ago, uh, at our district's annual conference, we call it the DLD, uh, we voted as a district, as a conference, for Matt Moore to be our district superintendent. So all those kind of hoops and things that you go through. And so currently, Matt serves as our district superintendent. He also serves on staff at One Church Sacramento. And just a great little story about that. So that wasn't the church Matt had planted. Matt had planted a Hope Church in Sacramento. But during the pandemic, uh, as churches were having to close down, as we remember, and not meet inside and figure out things to do, um, uh, as far as I know, like in downtown Sacramento, there isn't a Redwood Tree Grove like we had access to uh, out in Sebastopol. So they had to figure out how to meet and where to meet in, in backyards and, and things like that. Well, Matt got to know uh, another pastor uh, of, of a church nearby uh, that they were struggling to to figure out how this shutdown works and people are leaving and all those things. And, and Matt, uh, our God, worked to bring uh, this pastor's name, Sheldon, and Matt together uh, to, to merge their two churches. And so this new church is now called One Church. And so Matt is, is kind of a co-lead pastor with, with Sheldon. And that allows him to be district superintendent and to travel around uh, and to come like he is coming today to, to preach for us. He's preached here once before. It was last year I was on vacation, 
And I happened to be in town, so I sat out there, uh, but I don't think we introduced him in any way as our associate district superintendent. But as we did with Neil, I want you to know who, who he is. Uh, that way, if you ever have problems with me and Jim Failer and you need to talk to someone in the district, he's the guy uh, you, you, you want to get to know. Um, and so this is uh, Matt Moore. And again, that's his family. Um, Matt, today after the service, uh, we're having a snack. We always do that, usually of some form. Um, just to brag, my wife made her homemade cheese balls. Uh, so some of us have tasted those before. So we got a couple of uh, big cheese balls there. Um, and cheese is Cheese ball is pretty salty, and that's, you know, you want that. It, it's, um, that's part of what it is. But one thing about Matt, Matt loves pepper. And uh, Matt loves, like, to take a big thing of pepper and take the lid off and just, like, pour pepper on anything he eats. So, Matt, this is for you to add to your cheese ball today. Um, and if you want to know how I learned that, it, it wasn't Jose. Um, it's from your brother-in-law, and I have other stories that Mark told me that I won't repeat. Um, and so... Uh, but Matt, come, and uh, thanks for being here today. Uh, bless you. Thank you, Paul. I didn't know how you knew that. I'm like, I didn't think we've had a meal together. We've had coffee. But, um, dude, I do love pepper. We did, that's right. But the problem with, the reason why I take the top off of pepper is because a lot of restaurants like to fill them to the top. And so when you shake it, it doesn't come out, so I just take the top off. But then sometimes more came out, more came out, and I was like, you can never get enough pepper. So anyways, I appreciate that. All right. Well, we are going to be in John. So if you want to open your Bibles and go to the Gospel of John, we're going to be in John chapter 6. And you guys have been doing this series on John. And the name of the series is Signs to Believe, the Miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so there's the, we're looking at these signs, these miracles, and we're asking ourselves the question, what does this miracle say about Jesus? Okay, so just keep that in mind. Now, this is not something that I came up with. This is not something that Paul came up with. This is what the scripture says. So at the end of John, you see the purpose of John. So I was taught when writing an essay in high school that you always put your purpose statement, first paragraph, somewhere in the beginning. Well, that wasn't necessarily true in Bible times. Sometimes you find it in the middle, like 1 Timothy. The purpose of 1 Timothy is right in the middle. Well, the purpose of John is found at the end, and it reads like this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So it's basically saying Jesus did a ton of stuff. Like he did all of these miracles, but, Jesus, but John just grabbed at a few of them. Why? It tells us, look at verse 31. These ones, these select miracles, signs are written so that two things will happen so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one that's talked about in the Old Testament. And number two, that he's the son of God, that he's really come from God, that he is God. So that's the first thing. Second thing is that by believing, you may have life in his name. So every one of these passages that you guys have been looking at the last couple of weeks and the next, you're in the middle of the series, right? 
Yeah, so over the next few weeks and today, you should see this. You should see these two things. So in this passage that we're looking at today, which is the feeding of the 5,000, we should see, number one, that Jesus is the Christ. We should be looking for what about this passage, this story that took place in the life of Jesus tells me that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And then what about this passage tells me that also we might have life in his name. So be looking for that. Now, I'm going to read the passage here in just a second. But like, as I read it, I want you to try to put yourselves in the shoes of the disciples. Like if you were there watching everything take place, put yourself in the shoes of the disciples, then also put yourselves in the shoes of the religious leaders and the Jews and the onlookers and the crowd and just watch the interaction that takes place. So one more thing I wanted to say about these signs. These signs... Jesus did, he didn't just do for show. He wasn't just trying to like wow a crowd, but instead he was trying to paint an accurate, John was highlighting these so that he would paint an accurate picture of who Jesus is, okay? So the problem was, is a lot of these, as we're going to see in this passage today, a lot of times the crowds were getting stuck on the sign. They were getting really wowed with the miracle, but they weren't looking at what the miracle was pointing to or who the miracle was pointing to. So think of it like this. Say you were driving up to north and you were going across the Oregon border. Say I was doing that with my family and I saw the sign that says, welcome to Oregon. And so say I pull off the side of the road. I'm like, let's get a picture in front of this sign. So we pull off the side of the road. I'm all excited. The family's like, why are you so excited? Like, I'm like, it's the sign that we're, we're in Oregon. So we take a picture in front of the sign and say then I get back in the car and then I take the next exit and turn back. My family would be like, what are we doing? Like, we haven't seen Oregon. I'm like, we saw the sign that said we're in Oregon. They're like, yeah, but we spent like three minutes in Oregon. Like, we got to actually see Oregon. Well, I feel like that's similar to what people did with Jesus. They're like, what? He fed 5,000 people? Whoa. But they didn't look deeper to see like who, what was that sign pointing to? That sign was pointing to so much more. So we don't want to get excited about the sign to Oregon. We want to get excited about what the sign is pointing to the state of Oregon. It's like going down to Disneyland, seeing a Disneyland sign and getting excited about the sign, but not actually ever going to Disneyland. And so in this passage today, you're going to see the crowd just get excited about the sign. Like, no way, we got food. And Jesus is like, oh, there is so much more that I want to tell you. Now, one other thing before we dive into the passage is this idea of having an accurate picture of Jesus. I would say the disciples were getting there, the crowd sort of, but I want to ask you guys, would you say that you have an accurate picture of Jesus? Think about that. Would you say that you understand who Jesus is? Like some of the things that Paul shared this morning, he shared different pieces and parts of who Jesus is. And I would say that all of us including me, we have like an accurate somewhat picture of Jesus, like an accurate outline of Jesus. Think of it like this. If you were to ask me, my friend Jose came with me today. It was going to be a long drive. He's my neighbor, so he came with me. And if you were to say, hey, Matt, I've never met Jose. Tell me about him. And if I were to say, well, he's he's 5'9", brown hair, brown eyes, 
yeah, that's, that's him. You'd be like, okay, I, I can see that's true as well. Did you just read his driver's license? I'd be like, no, no, he's a friend of mine. Well, tell me more. Well, he's 5'9", brown hair, brown eyes. Like, it's true. That's a vague description of him, but tell me more. Like, how does he think? What does he get excited about? I feel like we can quote some good facts, driver's license facts about Jesus. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. He's compassionate. Cool. But what else? We don't, we haven't pushed into those things. Like the song we just sang, I took all these notes on that last song. I loved it. Like, have you experienced him being hope for the hopeless, mending the broken, helping the hurting, rest for the weary, bearing the burdens, being a defender, healer, refuge, redeemer, provider, protector? Have you painted that picture of Jesus? Do you know him that well? Or do you just have like a vague outline of him? Because as we get to know Jesus, he wants us to mature in our understanding of who he is. It's like this. You guys remember, any of you guys remember Polaroid pictures? Okay, so you take a picture and initially you look at it and you don't see anything. And then you wait a little time and you kind of begin to see a vague outline. You wait a little bit longer, it gets a little bit more clear, but still in black and white. You wait a little bit longer, and it's fuzzy, but the color's coming through, and you wait and wait and wait, and eventually the picture fully develops into what you took a picture of. I would say that is an illustration of what God wants in our walk with him, is that we have a picture of him, but it's a vague outline, it's a little bit black and white, but as we push into our relationship with the Lord, our understanding of him should get clearer and clearer and clearer like a developing Polaroid picture. So would you say that's true of you? Would you say that each week you come here, the theology nights that you guys have each month, would you say that's like you're grabbing a paintbrush and you're like, okay, that's a color, that's a piece that I hadn't thought about. Jesus, like tonight you guys are going over the love of God. Have you sat and soaked in the thought that Jesus God the Father has this love for me. He has this affectionate desire for me. He loves me. He likes me. Like, have you soaked in that? Have you brought out your paintbrush and painted that into your understanding of God? So, again, before we dive into the passage, here's what John has developed so far. We're going to be in chapter 6, but here's the paintbrush that he brought out, painting for us an accurate picture of Jesus. And John chapter 1, he says that Jesus is this lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we see in chapter 2 that Jesus has this power like a creator where he can turn water molecules into wine. We see in John 3 with Nicodemus that Jesus is the savior that didn't come to condemn, but he came to take away the sins of the world. He came to die to save us. John 4, we see that Jesus is this promised Messiah when he's talking to the Samaritan woman. End of chapter four, Jesus is this healer. Beginning of chapter five, again, we see Jesus is this healer. And then in the passage that we're going to look at today, we see that Jesus is the sustainer of life. And this passage is, record, is recorded in all four gospels. So when you read the gospels, you see some of the same stories, some not, Right? Each of the disciples, each of the writers of the Gospels are grabbing at different stories. Well, all of the Gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
grabbed at this story, which tells me it's important that all of them were like, yep, we got to include the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And what we're going to see in this passage today, again, is John painting a picture for us, and we're going to see that Jesus is the sustainer of life. So again, now we're going to dive in. John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. It reads like this. After this, Jesus went away on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Now, put yourself in the shoes of those that were watching this, the disciples, the crowd. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that we can so that these people may eat. Verse six, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many? Then Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled the 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, there's that word, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving then that they had, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right, so let's dive into this and look at this verse by verse and see if we see that Jesus is God, the Messiah, and then also that there's life in his name. So again, I'm gonna bring in a few of the other gospels as we go through here, but it says in verse one, look at your Bibles. After this, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So he went to the other side. He was kind of like, so it seems, getting away. It actually says in Mark, what Mark writes of this scenario is that he said to his disciples, come away with me privately that we can rest a bit. So it seems like Jesus was a little bit peopled out. He was trying to get away from the crowds, yet ministry followed him. And let me just say this, because I feel like I have permission to say this. Like, Paul... He loves you guys. He shepherds you guys. And this week, I, I was going to be here so he could get away, but then Yosemite, the trails were washed out and everything. Like, be mindful of him. Help him get away. Make sure that he rests well because oftentimes ministry does follow us and we get text messages at the wrong time and we are supposed to respond and we are supposed to pastor even in our off hours. But just as he's mindful of you guys, be mindful of him and Help him rest well. Encourage him to rest. As he's thinking about you guys, think also about him. 
Jesus trying to get away, ministry followed. Jesus didn't just close the door. He was willing to be interrupted. It says in verse two, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. So this large crowd wasn't interested in Jesus, but was instead drawn to him because of Jesus's popularity, his notoriety, the signs that he could do. It's like, give me the gifts. I don't want you, Jesus. I don't want you as the gift giver. I just want the gifts. It's like a little kid at Christmas getting a present and then just like running away and playing with it and ignoring the person, the hands that gave it to them. So they were sign-seeking. They were following him because he was like trending on social media, so to speak. Now, look what happened. Verse three, this hungry crowd. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat. So he sat up, he was looking over the masses and it said it was Passover. And this is probably why there were so many people in the area. This is the second of three Passovers that were recorded in the Gospel of John. He lifted up his eyes, then seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, and let me just hang there. It says in Mark here at this moment that when he looked out, he had compassion. And when I'm toast, when I'm tired, when I'm not wanting to give anymore, I do not have compassion. Like, my compassion meter is sometimes low, but when I'm tired, it's super low, and I've always been moved by Jesus. When he's trying to break away, get away from everything, and he's just wanting to be with his father, like he's willing to be interrupted. And even in this moment, he's, will, he's drawn to what he sees. He sees these, this crowd that's hungry. He says elsewhere that when he looks upon crowds, it's like sheep without a shepherd, and he still had compassion. So it goes on here, pushing more in, verse five. Jesus, he saw this crowd, and he then looks at Philip, and he says this, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And it gives us a little window into Jesus' head, what he was thinking. Jesus said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So oftentimes Jesus would do something, he would throw it out there. He knew what he would do, but he was asking a question because he just wanted to see what the disciples were thinking. And what Philip said is this, 200 denarii worth of bread wouldn't be enough for each of these people. This is like eight month wages. This is a lot of money. Like there's no way Philip is saying we can do it with what we got. He's like looking in his chest. He's like his little money bag. He's like, I don't have enough. We don't have enough. There's no way we can feed these people. Well, Jesus looks at one of his other disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, and said to him, and Simon Peter said to him, there's a boy here that has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? So Philip is like, dude, we don't have enough money. Then Andrew's like, yep, we don't have enough food. So they're looking at their own resources and they're like, yep, we don't have enough food. We don't have enough money. Yeah, send them away. Now get this, like these disciples had seen Jesus turn water into wine. They were out of wine. Jesus looked at the water. He's like, we're fine. We're good turn water into wine. These disciples are the same ones that saw, according to John, him heal a paralytic that had been paralyzed 38 years. Also heal another person. And not to mention all of the other signs that John didn't record. They saw all this. And here still, they're looking within their own resources. They're like, we don't have enough food. We don't have enough money. Yep, 
There's nothing we can do. It's impossible. But they had seen with their own eyes Jesus work the impossible. Like, how often do we do this in situations where, like, we know what Jesus can do, but we look at our own resources, we're like, yep, it's impossible. Not, I'm not even going to pray it because there's no way I can even think about what God will do. So I'm not going to pray it. I'm not going to ask. I'm just going to conclude it's impossible. Moving on. But here, Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was going to do something that they couldn't even think of. I think of that passage in Ephesians 3 where it says that we need to pray and ask God and he will do more than we ask or even think. Think about that. Think about a situation at work that you might be in. It's just like impossible. Kids, think about your classroom. Maybe it's a teacher you can't stand. Like my oldest son, he was having an issue with his teacher. I'm like, buddy, I got it. I'll email him. And the teacher said, oh, he didn't turn in an assignment. I'm like, he did turn in an assignment. He didn't. No, I'm like, he did. Last night, I got an email from the teacher that he found it a month later. I'm like, yes, God, you came through. But like, think about a situation that you're like, it's impossible. There's no, nothing that can happen in this situation, in this classroom, with this teacher. Maybe you guys feel trapped, some of you adults, in your marriage, or you feel overwhelmed with parenting. How often I've laid my head down at night next to my wife. I'm like, this kid of ours, what are we going to do? Like, literally, I've tried everything to do in parenting. Nothing works. And in those situations, God's like, you looked in all of your resources, in all your parenting tool belt, look at me. Look to me. The disciples who had seen Jesus do the supernatural, they were still looking at themselves. And the thing that I was thinking about is like, we really got to get our theology off the pages of Scripture. And we have to take Jesus of the Bible out of the pages of Scripture and into our lives. Because we believe this happened, do we not? We believe it. We're like, if I were to say, hey, do you guys believe Jesus turned water into wine? You guys would be like, yep. I did. Yes. Do you believe that Jesus yes. fed the 5,000? Yep. Yes. Do you think God can help you at work? I don't know. I, I maybe. Uh, like, I was just convicted just thinking, why is it that I emphatically believe this? And then in my life, I'm like, I don't know, God. Looks like you can't come through in here. I don't think you can do anything. Like, we have to believe that the God of the Bible is the God of our lives, that the Jesus that we're reading about is the Jesus that walks with us, that lives, that wants to be our good shepherd. So it goes on. After he asks his disciples and they're looking within themselves, trying to figure it out, we don't got enough money. We don't got enough food. Look at verse 10. Jesus said to him, all right, all right. Have the people sit down. Just put them, sit them down. I'm taking care of this. Now, then there was grass in the place and they sat down, the men about 5,000 in number. So they just counted dudes. But most people think if you were to count women and children, there might've been about 20,000 people here. So this is a massive crowd. Jesus then took those loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed it to them who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And it stood out to me that, like, he gave thanks before God did anything. Like, people weren't fed yet. Things weren't multiplied yet, but he gave thanks. And I've, I've noticed in my prayer life, I've started, because I get so distracted with prayer, like, 
I pray for like two and a half seconds and my mind is on something else that I've started just to type my prayers and I've watched myself when praying. I'm just saying, God, I need this. I need, I need, I need. It's like a laundry list, a Costco list. I need, I need, I need, I need, I need. And so I've tried to discipline myself to give thanks first, but I'm still only giving thanks for things that God has already done. But here Jesus is giving thanks for things that will come, that will happen. Do you thank God for things that you're asking for yet not received? Because you know he hears your prayers, but he hasn't yet answered them. But you know he hears, and you know he'll answer some way, somehow, in his timing. Do you give thanks before you receive it? It's like if I were to ask Jose, when we go out of town, I ask him sometimes, hey, hey, can you get the Amazon packages on my doorstep? I thank him before he gets those Amazon packages because I want them off my doorstep so they don't get stolen. Like, but I thank him before he's done it because I know he'll do it. And then I thank him afterwards too. Like, shouldn't we have that much confidence in God that we thank him when we pray? We're like, God, this situation at school, this teacher can't handle them. But I know you're gonna deal with some, I know you're gonna do something about it. So I'm gonna thank you now for whatever solution you come up with. I mean, what that expresses a, a confidence in God. Like, God, I know you see me. I know you care for me. Help me. I look forward to seeing how you will. So I, now I'm going to thank you in this moment. So he goes on here. As we know the story, he distributes. Disciples just grabs whatever they grab. They distribute. I don't know how long. I mean, there's 15, 20,000 people there total probably. They're just distributing. And it says... It's like a cruise. Any of you guys been on a cruise? You just keep going back to the buffet and there's just food there. And like you just push way past that hunger feeling, like full feeling. It says, so also the fit, they ate the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Verse 13. So they gathered them up, filled their 12 baskets of fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So he multiplied so much that at the end, they had more than what they started with. This reminded me that God not only gives us our daily bread, but he gives us more than we even ask. Just think about Jesus is the sustainer of life. He doesn't want to just barely sustain us, just barely give us what we need. Like, hey, is that enough? Is that enough? Nope, I'm going to ration you. He doesn't ration us. He just abundantly blesses us. He fills us up. Now, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the people. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said to him, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. So they were blown away. And they were not only blown away by this sign and have their fill, they're like, dude, there is something different about him. The crowd was realizing that this Jesus character was someone significant. They realized that the sign was pointing to a deeper reality of his true identity. And so what did they want to do? Verse 15. They wanted to take him by force to be their king. But when Jesus saw this, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the crowd saw, they're like, this Jesus, like, we need him. Like, 
we want him to be like this welfare system for us. So we don't ever have to worry about food again. We don't have to fish. We don't have to make bread. We want this Jesus for our own purposes. And they're thinking back maybe even to the healings. We're like, we don't have to worry about our food. We don't have to worry about our health. We want him as our king. We want him to go up against Rome, the powers that be. We want him to be our type of king. And it, like, how often do we do that where we grab at Jesus only the parts of Jesus that we want? We're like, oh, Jesus, he's a, an amazing savior from my sins, but not the Lord of my life. I want him to be savior, but not Lord and king. It's like we grab at those parts like, oh, yes, Jesus, this and that. Like I've met with some believers, and it's really hard for me. God tests my patience with this where it's like, they're, they're wanting pieces and parts of what God says, but not other parts. They're like, yeah, I lean into that. That's true for my life. But these other pieces, and I'm, I, I did this at our church a few weeks ago, and the elders at the church said I couldn't do what I really wanted to do. But I had a music stand, <laughs> and I started ripping pages out of the Bible. I'm like, yep, not this one. But it really wasn't a Bible. It was just a notebook. But I'm like, yep, not this, threw it on the ground, not this. It's like what we do is we're like, yes, Jesus, I want you to feed the 5,000. I want you to give me what I want whenever I want, like feeding the 5,000. But I don't want you for these other things. Yeah, that passage is too tough. That one's hard to believe. That doesn't relate to my life. Like what they were wanting, they were wanting Jesus for their own purpose, to feed their own selfish appetite. And Jesus is like, no. He withdrew again to the mountains by himself. He's like, nope, I'm not going to allow you to take me for your purposes or what you understand me to be. So this is where the story ends. But as you continue to read in John 6, Jesus begins to push more into this. And we're going to just push into this a little bit more. So scroll down it with your eyes or with your phone down to verse 24. Verse 24, this is the next day. Verse 24, it reads like this. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got in boats, went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus when they found him. So they're seeking him. That's a good thing. When they found him on the other side, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Just like a random question. Like, how'd you get here? Why'd you get here? Jesus didn't even answer that. I got here the other day, or I got here a few hours ago. Jesus is like, that was a silly question. Jesus answered, said, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because of the signs you saw, but you want more food. So they're seeking, but they're seeking for the wrong reasons. Look at verse 27. Don't, do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. So he's taking what he did physically and now explaining it spiritually. Track with me. Verse 27, halfway through. Which the Son of Man will give, for on him the God the Father has set his seal. Verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to do the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. It's like they're getting their notebook out. Okay, what is the works of God? Just tell me what to do. And he says that you believe in him whom he has sent. Remember the whole purpose of John? John's like, I'm writing these signs that you may believe. Believe. Here, Jesus is focusing on believe. 
They're wanting like, hey, what are the works of God? Like, what do we need to do to get more of this free stuff? Free healing, free bread. What do we need to do? What is the works of God? He's like, hey, this is the work of God. That you believe in him whom, you, whom he has sent. Let's just sit on that for a second. Would you say you believe that you've done that work? Because the way that I used to think about believing is it's like something in the past that's done. Like I believed in God, past tense, it was done. So check, did that, that homework assignment is done, now on to something else. That's not how believing is described in scripture. It's something, yes, that happens in the past, but continues, it's ongoing, that we continue to believe, would you say that you're still doing the work of believing in him? Yeah, you believe in him as savior, but like that last song that we just sang, did you notice all of the attributes of who God is, all the, all the things that Jesus is? Like I said, the healer, the redeemer, the sustainer, the defender, like have you believed in all of those things as well. Like we trust him not only as savior, but also as Lord. We lean into not only his promise of eternal life, but his promises to sustain you in life each and every day. Do you lean into his promise that he will give comfort and peace and he'll remove fear and anxiety? Do you, as Paul was sharing the catechism, like do you believe in this moment in the cross and in this moment the resurrection. Not just to get you saved, but you're like, okay, I need to believe in the work of the cross now to put to death in me that sin that's in me. And I need to believe in the work of the resurrection right now so that I have the power to live the life you've called me to live. We need to believe, not just in the past, but keep on believing. It'd be a lot easier if Jesus just said, every week, show up to church, get your one or two or three things to do. And then you go out on a Sunday afternoon, check, check, check. And you're done. But is it not harder to do the work of believing? When life hits, you have a relationship that's a struggle, a neighbor that's a pain, when you have somebody at work, whatever it may be, in those moments, God, I believe you to be good. I believe that you have a purpose for this situation. I believe that you can live in me and work in me. That's harder but is that not more enjoyable? Just coming to God every day and being like, God, give me the three things to do. Check, 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 done, live my life. Versus God, this is exciting. Here's my life. Help me to live into this situation and love this person. And I think about the things that you guys are doing over the next few weeks, right? Going on a walk together, going on a hike, maybe bringing a neighbor, like leaning into that relationship that God put in your life or going down to the rescue mission. Is that what it's called, the rescue mission? going down there and loving on people on Easter, leaning into that, like saying, God, I need you in these moments. I need you to help me. He goes on here. Verse 30. So they said to him, they're still looking for a sign. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? <laughs> it's like, you just saw the feeding of the 5,000. If you didn't, you heard of it, right? They say, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's like they're like wanting to see that miracle again. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, verse 32, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you true bread from heaven. Verse 33, 
For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread. So they're pushing in. They're like, Jesus, we want to see more. We want to see more. And he's like, you got to get what the sign is pointing to. It's pointing to me. He keeps bringing the picture back to him. He's like, see what I did? Look at the hands that did that. Look at what the hands are attached to. Look at me. I am the solution. Finally, he just gets more emphatic. Look at verse 35. He says, I am the bread of life. (laughs) You know, it's like, focus, focus. I'm the bread. It's like sometimes when I'm talking to my kids, clean the bathroom. Clean, do your chores. It's like I suggest it. I'm like, I reminded you. It's like Jesus was hitting on it, trying to get the disciples to get it, the crowd to get it. Finally, he's just emphatic. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. They're like, what? What does that mean? Jump down, verse 48. Again, he says it. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. Verse 51, he says, emphatically, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's like, you're like, Jesus is like, people are like, wait, what? Wait, what? We just wanted some bread. We just thought you were this prophet. We would make you king. Now you say, eat our flesh, eat your flesh. Like, what is going on? Look at verse 60. Look how people are processing this. Many of the disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. (laughs) Who can listen to this? But Jesus, verse 61, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do not take offense at this. He explains a bit, looked down at verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So he went from like a mega church, I mean, thousands of people, to down to, look at verse 67, 12. This, this was the worst sermon Jesus ever gave, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. To go from thousands down to 12. Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Now put ourselves in Simon Peter's shoes. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. And we have, this is key, remember the purpose of John, verse 69. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Believed and have come to know. This is where I want to camp and end today. Again, I think many of us have believed, right? We do. We believed, but have we come to know? So in the original language, these two verbs, believe and and know, They're in the perfect tense, which basically means this, that it's something that happened in the past but continues to develop, like that developing picture. It continues to have effects. So they believed they came to know him in the past, but over time, it has this lasting, continuing effect. So in other words, like you, when you first came to know Christ and believe in him, everything you believed was true. But over time... It's not that it's any less true or more true, but you come to own that truth. 
It's like you knew Jesus was a savior of your sins and you confessed that and was baptized, but now isn't it amazing to see and come to know that Jesus is savior when you sin? It's like when my kids sin, one of my kids that was on that screen, he, so that narrows it down to two of them, he just goes into this guilt mode every time he sins. And I'm like, nope, nope, that's garbage. Get rid of that. Every time you sin, if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So every time you sin, experience Jesus in that moment as a savior and cleanser of your sin. So he, moment by moment, is, he's believed that Jesus is savior. And now he's coming to know that he's savior. Isn't that sweet? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that better than just some wine from water and some bread? Like, I want that from Jesus. I want him to sustain me like that. That is lasting. That is finding, as John said, that you might know that he is the son of God, the Messiah, and that there's life in his name. Don't you want that? I watch my kids' shoulders sometimes going from, we'll go on walks together. And I'm like, how you doing, bud? He's just sad. He's overwhelmed. And as I share with him the truth of the gospel, remind him of the gospel, sometimes I just see his countenance change. He's like, oh, God's not mad at me. God loves me. Like, don't you want that type of sustenance, that type of sustaining, that bread of life versus some cool tricks that Jesus can do? Jesus did cool tricks just to kind of get people's attention. Hey, look at me. People are like, do more cool tricks. It's like, nah, he's like, yeah, I don't, I'm not into that. I'm not just a magician. I'm not just a, just a, a circus show for you. No, like I am the sustainer of life. So my question that I want to leave you guys with today is this. Have you come to know that Jesus is the sustainer of life in your life? As it says in a couple chapters in John 10, have you come to know that in him there is life and life in its fullest. Like you guys know that Jesus has life, right? You get that, like eternal life out there, beyond there eventually, but have you experienced life and life in its fullest today where he wants to feed you and give you hope today? Let me go back to that song we sang last. Have you experienced like this last week hope when you felt hopeless? Have you felt his sustaining when you're broken, him mending? Have you felt when you're hurting, his helping? Have you felt his rest when you were weary? Have you felt him bearing those burdens? If you haven't, don't feel bad. Instead, just know that God wants to give you more. God wants to sustain you to be that healer, that refuge, that redeemer, that provider, that protector. So let me pray for us as we wrap up and we'll invite the worship team up for one last song. Father, I ask for me and for us that you would help us to realize that you are that sustainer, that you are that life giver. Father, help us to realize that you are good, you are gracious, you are kind, that you want to not only save us from our sins, but you want to give us life and life in its fullest today. So Father, help us to lean into your love. Help us to experience your steadfast love. Help us to know that you are kind and good and gracious 
and that each and every day you want to be there with us. Help us to experience you, not just to believe that you are true, but experience you in our everyday life. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.